Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds, in the lives of your people as they gather together. Lord, we know you are present with us here this morning. You will speak to us through your word. And Father, I pray that we will be of one mind and one accord in our desire to serve you and to accomplish what it is that you have called us to do. Lord, we ask that as the word is proclaimed this morning in the service and and as lessons are taught in the various classes around this uh, campus today, that you will be present in each place. And Father, that above all, we ask that you will glorify your great and magic, majestic name. And we will be thankful for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the fourth chapter of the book of Judges. Again, we are reminded as we read through the book of Judges that Israel, like the pendulum on a clock, seems to swing from commitment to the Lord to chasing after pagan gods. And Israel has again turned their backs on God. And because of that, and because they're worshiping vile gods who are no gods, the scripture is very clear. There is no other God but the God of heaven and earth, the creator of the universe, who brought himself into this world as Emmanuel, the Lord with us. All the other gods are demons. Doesn't matter what the God is called, it's a demon. Paul tells us that clearly in Corinthians. And so God subjected his people to 20 years of oppression under the hands of Jabin, king of Hazor, king of the Canaanites. And and we read that in the first part of the fourth chapter of Judges. Again, God brings joy, peace, blessing upon the lives of his obedient people. But if his people become disobedient, God will do whatever it takes, whatever discipline is required to bring them to repentance and to transform their lives because to the path of walking away from God is the path of self-destruction. And God doesn't want to see anyone destroy himself or herself. And so he does whatever it takes to bring them back. And so as we read through the book of Judges, we see some really harsh things happening. But we have to recognize the fact that God is absolutely bent on bringing everyone to himself. And to experience the joy of the presence of God is so overwhelming that whatever it takes to get there is worth it. This passage does not specify, but sometime during the 20-year period, Israel must have repented and returned to God. And as a result, he sends the word, and we read this uh, last week, he sent a word to his prophetess by the name of Deborah, this, this prophetess who was serving the Lord up in the high country of Ephraim, sitting under a palm tree that became known as the Palm of Deborah, where she ministered to the people who came to her. And God sent her a word. And the word was that deliverance was to come to Israel. And he told her how that deliverance was going to be effected. So in response to God speaking to her, she summoned a man by the name of Barak. Again, we don't know how she knew Barak because Barak lived many miles to the north, up near the Sea of Galilee, a totally different tribe uh, than Ephraim, the tribe of Naphtali. But apparently he was a fairly well-known warrior. Anyway, she summoned him, and a a man of God. So she summoned him, and he came. And she gave him the message that the Lord gave her. He was to be Israel's next shofat, or deliverer. He should have been overjoyed. But after he heard how he was supposed to deliver Israel, He balked. He said, I'm not going to do it unless, Deborah, you come with me. He wanted to guarantee. He he just couldn't accept God's word on faith without the messenger coming with him. 
And you remember that Deborah said, okay, I will come, but your lack of faith is going to cost you the honor of being the one to actually destroy the oppressor of Israel. Well, we come to the passage this morning that begins in verse 12 of the fourth chapter, where Sisera has heard that Israel was gathering on the top of Mount Tabor. Now, I described Mount Tabor to you last time. Mount Tabor is not a terribly high mountain. It's about uh, 1,843 feet above sea level. It's on the northeastern end of the Great Plain of Esdraelon. It's a relatively smooth peak. As I mentioned to you last time, if you've ever seen uh, the uh, sinusoidal wave on an oscilloscope, it looks a lot like that, just like that, or the bell curve that's used in uh, some places. What he did was hastily to assemble, Sisera hastily assembled his 900 chariots, and he brought together a large infantry of unspecified numbers, but probably a force larger than the force under Barak. And he set about to destroy this, this arrogant person by the name of Barak, who dares to bring 10,000 men up there and to, in effect, you know, do this to uh, Sisera. And so he's going to show this man who is boss and destroy Israel for their folly. So let's read beginning verse 12 of chapter 4 of Judges. Then he told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, and Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him, from Herosheth Agoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following, following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Agoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Again, let me just remind you of the general truth. There, there are many people, and I've heard it said in my own ear, who, who when they read the Old Testament, they say, how can this be God when there's so much blood being shed through the pages of the Old Testament? But let me say to you that far more blood has been shed in the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. I mean, the Old Testament is, is almost bloodless compared to the 20th century, in which our supposedly advanced societies of Europe and America ha have just led to this immense bloodletting which has occurred throughout the 20th century. I mean, hundreds of millions have died this century at the hands of war, at the hands of, of men such as Stalin and Hitler. I mean, this is peace in comparison. But, but in looking at the detail, what we have to remember is this is an outward expression of a spiritual warfare that has never ceased. The spiritual warfare is as intense, if not more so today, than it was then. And what happened to those um, seven young people down in Dallas where that guy came in and shot, it wasn't just a crazy guy, it's a guy driven by, by the evil one. And, you know, the shooting at Columbine and all these things is an expression of the spiritual warfare that's going on. Because who were the ones that were specifically picked out by these crazy guys? Well, they weren't crazy. They were young boys who, who were committed to, to the ways of evil. Who, who were the ones they uh, picked out? They were those who professed that they believe in God. It's spiritual warfare, then and now. It's the same. There is no difference. So here we have a man by the name of Sisera, in command of a mighty army, 
900 iron chariots. I mentioned this before. That's like having today 900 uh, M60 tanks uh, rolling it with your armed force here against a force that has none whatsoever, not even one. And he has an army probably that exceeded the size of Barak's force up in the mountain. So he came with great confidence, overconfidence. These guys are toast, was certainly Sisera's thought, probably in a, in a little bit different uh, vernacular, but nevertheless, that was the idea. He rolled up onto the lower slopes of Mount Tabor with Barak's men up there on the mountain with no fear, no fear that there was going to be a trap, no fear of the God of Israel. What did he have to fear of the God of Israel for 20 years? That God had done nothing for Israel in his opinion, in Sisera's opinion. Well, at that very moment, with the forces down there at the base of the mountain, Deborah cried out to Barak, arise and strike them. Now remember, Barak's name means lightning. Zap them, Barak. In effect, she's saying. Now Josephus says something interesting here. He implies that Barak was a bit hesitant and fearful here when he looked down and saw, whoa, look at all those chariots and all those guys down there. I mean, these are real fighters, and what have I got? A bunch of ragtag guys up here, probably most of which have had maybe seen a little fighting in the past, but this is not a disciplined army I'm leading. And so he was uh, a bit fearful about going down the mountain against such a great army. But he was inspired to faith and obedience by Deborah's confident proclamation which we read there in verse 14, where she said, Arise, for this is the day in which Yahweh, the Lord, has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. The Lord has gone out before you. The Lord is there. The Lord is a shield, a hedge, a bulwark, a mighty high tower. He's there. He's for you. He's, he will destroy the army of Sisera. And with that ringing in his ears, Barak led the charge down the mountain against the enemy force. Now, of course, charging down a mountain against an enemy that stalled, chariots could not go up any further because of the steepness of the slope, so they were stuck down there. Plus the fact, as we'll see in a minute, uh, there was a great deal of mud forming. This gave Israel a certain advantage. I mean, if you're running down slope, firing arrows and throwing spears, you have a little advantage to the guys down there who are trying to shoot back up at you. Now, I've never thrown the javelin, but I could imagine throwing the javelin downhill. You could heave it a whole lot farther than you could throwing it uphill. And, and so it would be for Israel. But, of course, the real reason for Israel's success was not gravity, but as it says in verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera. The Lord routed Sisera. The 10,000 men, however, I don't think they came down the mountain quietly. I think they were screaming and yelling and setting up a real hoopla. And the Lord used that to put panic in the hearts of the Canaanites. Now, you know, even if you're in an army that seems more powerful than the enemy, you're still one person. And as one person, you see 10,000 men rushing straight at you. That can be a frightening thing, you know. Many an army has been routed purely by fear in history. And so it was at this time. The Lord exaggerated the panic in the heart of the men. It just like a fear that was beyond all bounds took a hold of them and they just knew they were dead. And so they, they turned and they fled. I mean, they didn't even stand and fight. They turned and fled in front of Barak's charging army. And they went westward back towards Tanakh, Megiddo, Herosheth fleeing across the plain. Now, can you imagine what was going through Sisera's mind? This can't be happening. This can't be happening. 
I've got a stronger army. I've got chariots. They don't even have a single chariot. How can this be happening to me? These Israelites are not even trained. They're not even disciplined. And who is this man, Barak? Well, Barak is the man of the Lord. That's who he is. And that's what made the difference. Now, what we discover about Sisera here is that when things got bad and his army was melting, he turned his chariot around and tried to go, but something must have gone wrong with his chariot because we're told that he jumped out of his chariot and he fled on foot. Now, I don't know. I've, I've not ever tried to drive a tank, but if I'm out there driving a tank across the field uh, against an enemy that has no tanks, um, what's the chances of my getting out of the tank and running on foot in front of this army rather than staying in the tank, you know? Well, there had to be a problem of some sort that made it so the chariot wasn't a quick way to go because there's no way, uh, unless your name is Elijah, Elijah, there's no way you can outrun a chariot because the chariot is, is pulled by horses. Well, there obviously was a problem for the chariots. Barak and his army pursued the Canaanites as they fled. I've mentioned this before, uh, the, the article that was written, oh, uh, probably last year now. <laughs> Time goes by so quickly I lose track here, but uh, one of the great military historians mentions the fact that more men have died in battle with wounds in their backs than in their fronts. More men die fleeing than actually facing the enemy. Because fleeing, you have no defense. You know, fleeing, often the fleeing army just throws all their weapons away so they'll be unencumbered. <laughs> and you're running pale-mell and the guys coming after you, they're still armed, you know. And it's a very devastating thing that happens. The ancient Greeks, that's the way it was. The two great Greek forces would come together. They were just like two uh, professional football lines facing each other, you know, and they just kept pushing on each other till one side broke. And that side it broke, turned and ran, and it was all over. Arrows and spears in their back, and they were destroyed. And so it was with the Canaanites. God gave Barak the power to wipe out the entire Canaanite force. The entire Canaanite force. Now, the details of the route are not given here in this narrative. But they are poetically described for us in the next chapter, which is called the Song of Deborah, or sometimes the Song of Deborah and Barak. Let's read a few verses from that fifth chapter. We'll be looking at the fifth chapter also, but these verses kind of fit in right here, beginning at verse 12 of Judges 5. Remember, this is poetry, okay? Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles, and the people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek came down. Following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Machir, commanders came down. And from Zebulon, those who wield the staff of office. In other words, scribes mostly. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah. As, Issachar, as was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there was great resolves of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, there was great searching of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan. Why did Dan stay in ships? Asher sat at the seashore and remained by its landings. Zebulon, however, was a people who despised their lives even to death. And Naphtali also, 
upon the high places of the field. You get the contrast here between verses 16, 17, and verse 18, where some didn't come and the others bore the brunt. The kings came forth and fought, and they fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder in silver. The stars from the stars fought from heaven, and their courses, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. O my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hooves beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. Curse Meros, says the angel of the Lord, utterly curse its inhabitants, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Now, obviously, there's not a great deal of uh, intimate detail there, but there are enough details in that poem to give us a sense of what happened here. First of all, we discover that there were several other tribes that aided Zebulon and, and uh, Naphtali here. These weren't the only two armies that were involved. The bulk of the army was made up of Zebulon and Naphtali, the two northern tribes there. But in addition, we, we discover from this passage that some came from Ephraim, and that's logical because Deborah was from Ephraim. And when she joined up with Barak, probably some of those that were loyal to her came along as uh, warriors to join in the fighting. We're also told that Benjamin and Issachar sent help. Now Issachar should because they were a neighboring tribe that possessed part of the area where the trouble was, was happening. But uh, we're also told that Reuben thought about it, thought about it, searched their hearts, but apparently sat on their hands and didn't actually join in the fray. And then we're also told here that the other tribes of Gilead didn't join either, which would be Gad and Manasseh. And so here were some tribes on the east side that could have helped but did not. And we're told also that Dan, now what did it say about Dan there? Uh, it said that Dan stayed in its ships and Asher sat by the seashore. <laughs> so neither Dan or Asher joined in with any help here in this fighting. Verse 19 indicates that the battle raged all the way back to its place of origin, to Tanakh and Megiddo. Now, I pointed out to you before on this little map, the mountain where the battle occurred is here. The other cities, Harosheth, Megiddo, and Tanakh are all along this edge over here where you see Mount Carmel and the Shephelah. They're right on the border there with that and the valley. They are very important cities. They're cities that guard routes through the hill country there from the coast into the plain. And so they have a long tradition of being extremely important cities. And uh, so it's those three cities. Megiddo is a fascinating city to go to. Uh, we've been there three different, on three different occasions to the site of Megiddo. And Megiddo, of course, is where you get the, the word Armageddon. Armageddon comes from Har Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo. And it refers to the plain out there in front of it, the greatest plain in all of Israel. And of course, we think of Armageddon as the final battle, but many Armageddons have been fought. Battles have been fought time and time again in that particular plain. At Megiddo, there's a wonderful water shaft where they dug way down the ground and out under to get water even outside the walls, but underground. And you can go into that water system even uh, today. So they fled all the way back to these cities and the Canaanites, it says, did not gain the plunder they wanted. The passage there says that they gained no silver. Now, one of the reasons that men go to war is to gain bounty from this. And Sisera is expecting to clean up here. 
but he didn't gain anything at all. They did not gain any bounty. Verse 20 and 21 give us a very interesting little insight here. It says, the stars fought from heaven. Now obviously, Alpha Centauri didn't come down here and fight out in the battlefield. It's not that. It's a poetic statement that something came down from the sky. And it tells us that the torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Well, if you've ever been into Kishon, you say, where's the torrent? It's just a piddly little creek that runs through there. So what are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about the fact that the Lord intervened. The Lord intervened. And the implication is that he sent a great thunderstorm. I mean that it just poured a deluge. And that it turned the Kishon into what it not normally was, and that was a torrent, a great flood. And when the fleeing Canaanites tried to get back across the Kishon, whoa, you know, there was no way to get back across the Kishon, and that's why they had to abandon the chariots, because they would not go through the water and the mud. According to Josephus, the great, there was a great storm of rain and hail. And this is how it happened. The Canaanites were facing up Mount Tabor and the Israelites were coming down and the hailstorm came from right off the top of the mountain right into their faces. It was just hailing square into their faces. And so they couldn't see, they couldn't fight. And the Israelites, of course, were running with the hail. It was coming behind them. It's just kind of accelerating their, their trip down the mountain. And as a result, the enemy was totally overwhelmed by the Lord pouring. I mean, the rain doesn't normally fall like that. The hail doesn't normally fall like that in that part of the world. And, and so it had to be something that God brought specifically to give Israel the victory. Verse 23 is a bit of an odd verse. It says, Curse Meros, says the angel of the Lord, utterly curse its inhabitants, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. Well, what's Meros? Well, Meros was a town. Uh, this is the only place in all of Scripture where this town is mentioned. So, we have no real certainty as to where it was located, but apparently it was located along the route that the Canaanites were fleeing backward. And they could have come out across, out from that town, and just cut right through or, or put a, you know, a barrier in front of the Canaanites and caught them between the approaching Israelites and themselves. But they didn't. They just stayed in their cities and said, we're not going to do anything about this, you know, and, and just let it happen. And so God cursed these people for not being willing to help God's people in getting a victory over the enemy. That verse illustrates something I think that's very important. God is sovereign. God will accomplish His purposes. His will will be done. And those who say, Lord, I want to be a part of your will and go forth and do it will be blessed. And those who sit on their hands or refuse to do what God calls them to do will suffer the consequences. Woe to those who hear the call of God but refuse or choose not to participate in its accomplishment. God has called every single one of us to serve him in some capacity. And it's, it's our place to be obedient. As I thought about that, this passage came to my mind from Matthew chapter 21. You, you know the story, but let's just look at it again briefly. So I, I think it's a neat little insight which the Lord uses. He's, of course, talking to the Jews there after he's cleansed the temple. Jesus is. And when, when they say to him, By what authority do you do this? 
You know, and he says, well, you know, by what authority did John the Baptist do what he did? And they said, um, no, well, we don't know, <laughs> because they knew they'd put themselves into the fire no matter which way they answered. And so Jesus goes ahead and gives them this little parable, I guess you could say. What do you think? Verse 28, Matthew 21. What do you think? A man has two sons. And he came to the first and he said, son, go to work today in the vineyard. And he said, I will, sir. And he did not go. And he came to the second son and, the, and said the same thing. But he answered and said, I will not. Yet afterwards he regretted it and went and worked. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said, the latter. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. You see, the tax gatherers and the harlots basically said, I will not. But then as God brought conviction on their hearts, they repented and they turned to do the work. And of course, the Pharisees said, Ah, we're doing the will of God, but they weren't doing the will of God. So who are we? Are, are we like the first son who appear to be obedient, but in reality we're not? At Sunday we look very Christian, but Monday we're not? Or are we like the second son and we first hear the word of the Lord, we say, oh, I can't do that. No, thanks, Lord. I'm going somewhere else. But later we're smitten in our hearts and we turn and we do what God has commanded us to do. Even though it's not included in the parable, I like to think of a third son whom when the Lord said, do this, he says, yes, I will do it, and went and did it. <laughs> That's the ideal, of course. That's what all of us as parents <laughs> would like to see happen in the lives of our children. But all of us having been children at one time, realize uh, that that isn't going to happen very perfectly. Uh, hopefully it does happen at times, however. But, of course, we're dealing with something of, of, of uh, crucial importance, the ultimate goal and, and purpose of our lives to be obedient. The people of Morose were not. Barak was. But Barak at first said, no, I'm not going to go. Unless, of course, Deborah, you come with me. She says, okay. It's going to cost you. Not for her sake, but cost him for his lack of belief. But he did it. And when you go to Hebrews and you read the list of the great uh, men of the Hall of Faith there, Barak's name is listed. Gideon and Barak, it says. Doesn't even mention Deborah. Strange as that might seem. Well, let's look at uh, chapter 4 of Judges, verse 17. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera, and she said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug, a skin, an animal skin. And he said to her, Please give me a bottle, a little of water drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk. Now, some of us might portray, you know, goes and air, pulls out this bottle, takes a cap off, pours him a glass. No, 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 no. This is a skin of yogurt. You know, it's, you don't have refrigeration in those days, so it's, it's converted uh, into yogurt. Not yogurt with, with apples and, and peaches in it, but the straight stuff. <laughs> and gave him to drink, and she covered him. And he said to her, Stand the door with the tent, and, if any, if, and it shall be that if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is anyone here? That you shall say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and went through into the ground. For he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. And behold, Barak, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said, 
Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. And the hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now this can be a squeamish passage, and one that would be used by many to talk about the brutality of times past. But let me say to you, the brutality today is every bit as bad, if not worse. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Deborah had said that if you do not do this on your own by faith, a woman will deny you the glory, the honor of killing the enemy of Israel. Sisera fled the battlefield. His chariot got bogged down. It was no use to him, so he took off on foot. He decided that since uh, everybody was chasing back towards Tanakh and Megiddo, which was uh, to the west, southwest, that he'd flee the opposite direction. He, he took off towards Heber's territory, I think, first of all, to avoid the main pursuit. Oh, if they're all going that way and they're being chased that way, I'll go this way and maybe nobody will notice that I have gone a different direction. And secondly, of course, it was to get out of the big flood there in the middle of the valley. To, to flee along the slopes of Mount Tabor around up there to the northwest would be to stay out of the main swamp. And finally, I think he realized that there might be some sanctuary up there because Heber the Kenite was at least at peace with Jabin. And if I can make it around there, maybe I can get back up to uh, Hatzor, where my king is, and there he would be safe. It says in verse 17, as we read it there, there was peace between Jabin, king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. So that he wasn't viewed, Kenites were not viewed as an enemy here to Sisera. Unfortunately for Sisera, he probably knew nothing of the Kenite-Israelite relationship. He probably had no idea that back in very important biblical history that Moses had married into the house of the Kenites. And the Kenites had been, in effect, become first cousins to the Israelites as a result. And, of course, the close relationship between Israel and the Kenites was far more important than any peace treaty made between Heber and Jabin. So here's Sisera. Put yourself in Sisera's shoes. This man has trucked over the landscape many miles. He has probably run a dozen miles across the landscape in the rain, in the cold. And so this guy was exhausted and he was famished. And, and so he was e easily taken in when Jael offered him solace. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us how she knew that he was coming or how she even knew who he was. It's very possible, of course, that a sentry, because even though the Kenites were camped in this area, they probably had somebody out, you know, outlook all the time just in case there would be any threat. Uh, probably a sentry came and, and told her that, that he was coming through the area and to be careful. But she went out and, and met him. She obviously knew who Sisera was. He was the commander, he was the evil commander of the Canaanite army. And so she invites him in. Now, who is motivating this woman? She's being motivated by the Lord. She's being motivated by the Lord to do what she's doing here. He was inside the tent, sheltered from the cold, and the rain. Uh, he was satisfied by the fluid milk. I mean, by giving him milk rather than water. Uh, of course, <laughs> she, she really uh, laid him out there because what, what is it when we're, when we're not feeling so well, we're supposed to drink some hot milk and go to bed or something like that. And that helps you to sleep better, supposedly. 
Well, Sisera was absolutely overcome by weariness, and when she offered him a place to lay down, he simply could not resist it. But he said to her, now you stand in the door of the tent and you watch out, make sure everybody goes by and that you tell everybody that nobody's in here. I don't think Jael had ever killed anyone before. I mean, these people weren't all just a bunch of murderers. I mean, it, just killing people wasn't a habit of everybody's life. She probably had never harmed anyone in her life before. In fact, what she did was totally against all the etiquette of that day. When you invite, you know, in the Near East, particularly amongst the tent people, the Bedouins, you invite somebody into your tent. You bring them in in peace. And as long as they are there, they are guaranteed their safety, no matter what. You will even possibly forfeit your life. Remember the story of Lot? Lot in the city of, of Sodom? And, and the two angels came in human form. And, and he was, he, I mean, to me, I have a real hard time with this. But anyway, he was ready, ready to offer his daughter to this howling mob outside rather than those guests that had come into his house. Now, I, I could never do that. I'd just keep the door shut and not offer them anybody. Just see what happens. But this is hospitality in those days. And so jail is violating the custom, the culture, the built-in, inculcated way of thought for, for hundreds of years. There is no way she would have done that on her own. No way. The only way she could have done that is that the Lord put it into her mind that this man is a vile, evil man. He's, he's Satan incarnate, if you will. He is the oppressor of your dearly beloved Israelite brethren, cousins, if you will. And so she broke the custom of the day because the law of the Lord is higher than the law of men where it conflicts. And so she did what was not in her nature to do. Now she was very talented with... Uh, tent pegs and hammers because Bedouin women were usually the people who put the tents up and so she very well knew how to use them and so when this guy uh, fell asleep she simply nailed him to the ground. Now that's pretty gross and it's something we can hardly, I mean it can make us a little squeamish but the guy probably never knew what hit him, you know literally, you know. It, it was probably a, a better way, you know, than, than other ways because for example if Barak had captured him then he'd have known that he was going to die. And he'd had to face the fear that Barak was going to execute him, you know, because that would have been what Barak would have done. But this way, he just went to sleep and never woke up. So in many ways, it was almost merciful. Hot on Sisera's trail, Barak arrived. And Jael, I don't think with any degree of pride at all, just simply showed him the man that he was looking for. And I think immediately into Barak's mind came the words of Deborah. You will be denied the honor of taking the life of the enemy of Israel by a woman. Why? Because he hadn't believed God in the beginning. Oh, in the long run he believed and he did obey, but he was a man of great hesitation and a man of not immediate obedience. But no matter what we say of this story, Barak's boldness finally and willingness to lead his men, the advantage of the army coming down the hill and the, against the enemy, jail doing what she did, it doesn't really matter. And none of those things were what brought the victory. The victory was brought by the Lord. The Lord gave Israel the victory. He alone enabled the Israelites to overcome their oppressor. And He alone will deliver us 
As we face the trials and tribulations of every day uh, and, and whatever comes along, it is God alone who will deliver us. It isn't anything we do. We can't deliver ourselves. It's just like, you know, the thought that we might have sometime that if we build up a big enough pile of money, then we will be secure. But you very well know that in this age, a big pile of money can go like that. It is God who delivers us. It's God who provides for us. It's God who's our strength and our shield in the midst of it all. And we must put our trust in Him. Not that we shouldn't do what's right. You know, we, we need to save for retirement and we need to do these other things. But not if it makes us misers. Not if it makes us people who do not share and give and, and demonstrate love to, to one another. God will meet our needs. Well, with the destruction of the army of the Canaanites, Jabin, the king in Hatzor, was suddenly without any protection at all. And the last verse there says, The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. In other words, after destroying the army there, they marched against Hatzor, and the city of Hatzor was uh, unable to defend itself because the army had been wiped out there in the plain of Megiddo, at Armageddon, if you like. And as a result, his reign was toppled, and Josephus tells us the city of Hatzor was again destroyed. Well, that brings us to the fifth chapter, and we've read a little part of it, but I'd like to study through the whole passage, uh, through the whole chapter briefly, not today, of course. But um, the Song of Deborah and Barak is a very, very interesting one uh, in all of its parts, and uh, we'll look at that next week.